0: Hello and welcome to episode 66 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps.
1: Stanislav, it's like it's like we're coworkers, you know, just I'm looking at you over a video conferencing software. Are you going to give me like a status update on
2: that one project we have left? Yeah, I'm going to need more time. Let's stretch it out for the next few weeks this one one deliverable. <laughs>
0: Just keep it going. It really feels like the world has caught up to us. We had this killer process for virtual remote video conference collaboration and now everyone is taking a slice out of our pie.
2: Have you introduced uh our series of baroque hand signals to any of your coworkers over over video conference yet? <laughs> No. Now, see, one means I need to talk now, and two means I'm going to talk when you're done talking.
1: No, they have, uh, you know, they all have like the hand raising function there. People forget to put their hand down and stuff like that. So it always looks like everyone's raising their hand. Of course.
0: Well, we just interrupt one another haphazardly.
2: That's how business is done.
0: Also with us, the godfather, Dave Harberger.
2: Uh, Does anybody want to trade me some modern staples for two children by any chance? (laughs)
1: Do I get the staples or the children?
2: the children
0: How old are the children, and how many pounds can they lift? they can one
2: of them says insists that he is very strong <laughs> Is it the younger one yeah my four year old is constantly wandering around now going, "Dad, I am so strong, I am so strong <laughs> do you do you tell him that no you're not comparatively i I lift him up and show him <laughs>
0: Can he carry a copy of like the Sunday edition of a newspaper? Because I think that's the turning point for childhood strength.
2: Uh, He tries to lift his brother. He's very into that. He likes to lift pans of water and dump them all over the place. It's really, yeah, we're doing it. Sometimes he just gets up and picks up things in the basement and goes, I need to do my exercises and just starts lifting them over his head.
1: (laughs) Pots of spaghetti bolognese just spilled across the floor dog
2: lapping it up yeah, exactly except for he calls it spabetti <laughs> spabit
1: i thought it was pronounced peschetti
2: i know he's he didn't go for Pischetti for some reason he's spabetti <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's my favorite opera singer <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: on this week's episode we break down the results of the newest mtgo tournament format the magic online super qualifiers for both modern and pioneer then we'll dive into pioneers mono white devotion, and ask ourselves, what would Gideon do? But first, it's your favorite part of the show, housekeeping.
1: Everyone skips forward 60 seconds.
0: I think if we keep insisting that it's their favorite part of the show, eventually they'll have to get in
2: line. You know this drags on for more than 60 seconds. Sometimes.
0: Hello, and welcome to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. Shout-outs this week go to Stefan I. and Louis L., Also, big thanks to Samantha M. for increasing their Patreon tier. Really appreciate that. And of course, we want to send our gratitude to all the folks leaving us very friendly reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks this week go to FJ Ha, Bill the Person, Corey Squared, Joe Nealon, and Lou L., who I think might be our new patron as well. I don't know. But when you double dip, you get two shoutouts.
1: I think uh, it was Stefan I. He also sent us a a really nice letter thanking us for doing the pod. And uh, that's really appreciated as well, Stefan or Stefan.
0: However we pronounce your name, we're just happy to have you on our side of the basketball court. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can check us out at patreon.com slash the dive down. Of course, we know times are tough these days. So if you can't support us on Patreon, Don't sweat it. We're still going to be here every week putting out this podcast for you, and really for us. It helps keep us sane.
2: Let's be honest, at this point, it's really just about our own mental health. (laughs) Yeah, just the routine, you know, getting it done. If I could control one thing in my life, it's this podcast.
1: And along with the patrons, we're also brought to you in part by Manatraders.com. They are definitely the best way to be renting magic online cards right now. I know a lot of people are flocking to magic online. They're using it when, you know, we what they just canceled all local game store events through early May now. It was like a, just a recent tweet. So um we're going to be using magic online and arena. We're going to be playing magic just like we talked about last week. So if you want to check out Magic Online, if you want to be renting some cards instead of buying them, working with bots, you can go to com. use uh, or use the affiliate link in the show notes and use code the dive down, all one word, and get 15% off your first three months.
0: Shane, do you not like working with the bots?
1: Oh, like buying and selling through bots? Oh my gosh. Like, it's a pretty miserable experience. You're like trying to price check. They might have like two in stock. You're like, you're saving credits on like eight different botnets. You're like, oh, I have 0.275 on GoatBots. I've got 0.125 on, you know, card hoarder or something like that. Nothing against either of those services. I love both of those services when I am buying and selling like my treasure tests, but it's just a pain in the butt. You like the services, you just hate the bots. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate them being there. When I when, before before they had rental services, I had, you know, I was, I used card hoarder and uh goat bots
2: all the time. A lot of people don't know that before bots were a menace on Twitter, they were a menace on uh, Magic Online.
1: Yeah, they were trolling you. They were leaving mean comments in the chat window.
0: Yeah. All right, with all that out of the way, let's move over to the news desk
2: with Dave. All right, so the breakdown this week, like Stan mentioned, uh, we are going to take a look at a new series of events. Uh, Like we've we all know there's kind of been a big refocusing of competitive magic and just magic in general to uh, online gaming, as we kind of have anticipated. It's been pretty impressive to watch. Uh, a number of different kind of one-off events have been created, limited-run community events, you could call them, like uh, an upcoming Energy Series event that Stan ha- guested on that should be out in the next week or so, Stan.
0: Uh I don't know when the videos are coming out but we
2: will definitely promote them on Twitter when they do. Yeah. So there's there's those kind of events coming up. There's also been a new online Magic Fest that was announced by Channel Fireball that's pretty interesting. Now that's on Arena. Yeah. Which is but that's a cool thing and I know they're doing a ton of coverage for that. But Magic Online is has of course stayed in the game as well by offering a bunch of new high-level events. Uh, and the one we're going to talk about are the new series of Magic Online Super Qualifiers, which are kind of like giant PTQs for people to play on, on Magic Online. Uh, the main point is that they, they cost a bit, they have pretty good prizes, they have pretty good top-heavy prizes, and they give invites to the people who finish in both first and second place. So, um, Invites to what? The, the, the players tour. The regional players tour events? Upcoming regional players tours, that's right. Got it. Uh, So they've been pretty popular over the last week, and we're starting to get results from the first ones. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the first one from Modern and the first one from Pioneer, both of which were shared on March 22nd. So in Modern... Let's start there. I'm going to go quickly through the um go through the top eight, and then we'll just talk about some kind of general impression of the decks that we saw. The only data that we have right now is the top thirty two, which I think is uh plenty to be able to have a couple of uh reactions at any rate. So the first list, first place, piloted by Josh calls me Fabo, is humans yes, humans, which are, yeah Shane, very excited. I love it. I still love playing humans when I do play modern. So this list, to me, looked pretty uh, stock at this point. Was there anything in particular here, Shane, that stood out to you on this list? I mean, the main deck deputy is
1: maybe standard-ish. You typically will have some selection of those, or maybe um, the Militia Bugler. But the two Kessig Melcontents is kind of harkening back to some older builds. It's just a good way to kind of burn your opponent out without um, heavy interaction.
2: Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just got to get through a bunch of blockers or just get over the the hill, and so it's interesting that they finally decided, hey, we've gotta we gotta get a couple of these in here. the uh, The second place list is uh, Amulet Titan, piloted by Pump and Wine, who is the very very well known Amulet streamer. Uh, I forget their real name, but uh, they're always at the top of these uh, Magic Online events, always playing Titan. And I actually saw them tweet that this is the first time that they've made a player's tour. Oh, that's awesome. So congratulations to Punt and Wine for, uh, for getting there. That is good to see. Just
0: goes to show you, sometimes it takes a while, even when you're at the top of the MTGO League leaderboards consistently, like Punt and Wine is.
2: Yeah. The interesting thing about this list is that it was, it's an Amulet Titan list packing for Karn the Great Creator, which I guess is a little bit of a surprise, these days, it's not always part of the package. I know that it kind of was trendy around the time that uh, Karn first came out, but uh, interesting to see that come back.
0: I kind of feel like it's a meta call, whether you want to play Amulet Titan with or without the Karn package. It really depends on whether or not your sideboard is more useful to you with like these wishboard targets or whether you want your sideboard to actually help you in games two and three.
2: Yeah, and there's only a few wishboard targets in the sideboard, actually. They're important ones. I mean, one is walking ballista, so it's sort of an alternate way to kill someone if you're generating a bunch of mana. Uh, worm coil engine, they have Graft diggers cage and an engineered explosives, and a liquid metal coating, of course, if you can really just kind of get ahead of somebody and get rid of all their lands. So it's not a huge number of cards in this one, but um, definitely powerful you know, people have shown it even in Pioneer that it's it's Carn uh, is powerful enough to want to fetch stuff with.
0: Yeah, liquid metal coating, especially. What a killer combo! Vet and Carn just
2: start blowing up lands. Yeah, not frustrating to play against at all. At all. Uh, third place we have Dredge, which the only thing I would note about this dredge list is that it has three Ox of Agonis in it. Uh, fourth place was Burn which is nice but there's no not really a surprise to that in my mind either it's kind of like what exactly what you would expect to be in burn right now. 5th uh, place was dredge, very similar list to the 3rd place person and in 6th place bant control which um it's pretty interesting to see a top 8 with both burn and bant control given bant control's ability to gain a ton of life off of uro.
0: Yeah, I've also noticed that these banned lists are starting to move away from the Stoneblade package.
2: Yeah, I will say that a lot of these lists were tagged on uh, MTG Goldfish as being banned Stoneblade decks, and they are not. Oh, there's no blade. You should double-check, because none of the lists in this top 32 had Stoneforge Mystic. They were all just banned control. Oh, boy.
1: They're starting to just fully move away, or else just better value.
2: Yeah,
0: and they're playing main deck Supreme Verdict now, which... Doesn't feel awesome with
2: Stoneforge. So, Band Control, our kind of uh, popular, rising in popularity deck from last week, it's it made it here. Seventh Place is a pretty interesting deck to talk about for a minute. It is a teamer taking turns build, piloted by Time Walking on Sunshine, who I have heard <laughs> is Daniel Wong of Taking Turns fame. No. Uh, of course. Yes. Yes. Sweet deck though. So here's here's what this deck has going on. It has uh, the first thing that you notice when you're looking at this is that it has four fires of invention. Main. So it's using a fires of invention kind of package to be able to do cast cards like savor the moment, which let you keep up your spells, not, you know, savor the moment gives you a turn, but makes you skip your untap phase. So this lets you just go ahead and cast it without having to worry about if you're going to untap or not. Um, it's got a ton of planeswalkers in it, including two Chandra torture defiance, two Jace and four Renin six, which you can use to make some loops uh, especially you can get retrace going, of course, but there's other other ways to do it as well. And then um, it's packing four Mystic Sanctuaries to be able to uh, do things like cryptic loops and also recycle your time warps and your savor the moments.
0: Also, another deck with four, Arkham's Astrolabe. Yes. Weird. Because why not? Every deck should just be running four Astrolabe at this point.
2: Yeah. So this isn't really like my style of deck, but it was cool to see uh Daniel continue to innovate on this kind of archetype that he's just known for and you know, going a totally a way that I think a lot of people are not expecting, which is adding multiple other colors to be able to um get extra value and, and be able to recycle more uh turns spells. I think this deck's sweet. Like
1: this is this is the kind of deck that if I was playing something slower, like I'd love something like this. Just get a lot of, just set up a lot of cool loops, you know, like that weird little, what, that white cat. Brother, man, can have some loops. I just want those loops. Give them to me. Is that a meme you're referencing of some kind? or? uh and That may be a meme. You've, you've seen, it's like the metal, it's like the Scandinavian metal cat. He's like, brother, may I have some loops? <laughs> I don't think I have. <laughs> oh I'm, man, you're missing out. It's not a good cat meme.
0: Make sure to put this meme in the show notes because I'm sure a lot of people are confused. Yeah,
1: no, all, all, all of my my people, citizens of the nation out there, like they're nodding along. They're like, "Man, Dave and Stan are so old."
2: I feel like this is probably a meme from like 2011, and you've forgotten that it's from. It came out the same time as Friday by Rebecca Black or something yeah, like
1: that. Yeah, and like yeah, it's a, uh, it's like chocolate rain. He's guest storing in it.
2: Yeah, it's only 15 years later.
0: So, just looking at this deck a little more closely.
1: I'm try, trying
0: to understand, what's the point in having some of these one and two ofs? You know, like the one of Cryptic Command, the two of Lightning Bolt, one of Brazenbauer, I guess I kind of understand. But these really powerful interactive spells, I don't understand why you'd limit the number of, of, of these spells that you have access to.
1: Stan, the question is, what are you taking out for them? You need your, you need your, uh, you gotta have your... Time warps and save of moment, so you save the moments. You got to have your seer visions for digging. You need your fires.
2: Yeah, I mean, I assume that this is kind of all part of a looping engine that um, lets you once you take a bunch of turns have a win condition, right? And it's sort of like you don't necessarily run four of your win conditions in every deck that's like this. You maybe only run two or one to be able to just kind of win that way because um, even if you take all the turns, you got to win somehow, right? And so I think Lightning Bolt probably gives you that kind of reach eventually. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm looking at this deckless cold. I haven't had a chance to, I haven't watched Daniel play it, and so it's it's kind of tough to be able to say exactly how all the loops work. Uh, we're probably going to get emails because you delve deeper into this when well, I was, like, going to go, sweet deck, and then run out the door.
0: <laughs> Bye. Bye. Maybe I should give it a shot just to To see how hard it is to play, because this looks like a really challenging deck. This looks like the type of deck where you lose, and then when you think back on your performance and the decisions you made, you'll realize that you could have won five different ways three turns ago.
2: This looks like the type of deck where I'm just sad that I spent $20 a piece on Saver the Moment, (laughs) or whatever. After I played it, I'm like, oh, I'm not good enough to play this. So uh, the 8th place deck, don't want to forget about 8th place, was another burn deck. So we had two burn decks in the top 8, two dredge decks in the top 8, which is pretty interesting to see, and one human. So there were five aggro decks in the top 8. The only thing that's interesting about the burn deck that we saw in 8th place is that it was running Skullcrack's main
0: yeah. uh,
2: as a two-of, which is pretty cool. It makes me think that it's probably a deck that was pretty scared of uro among other things, but probably mostly Uro. So you could kind of avoid that one turn where they play it and then try to keep running them down. So it's interesting that Titan didn't really appear that much. There was only kind of that one uh, in the top eight. There were only five Titan decks in the top 32 overall. So maybe Titan is on the wane a little bit. But this is a huge event, I would point out. So the results that I saw had six six eight oh decks at the end of the Swiss. Oh my gosh, that's enormous. And had 14 7 1 decks in so out of the uh, out of the top 32, 20 of the decks were either 8 or 7-1, which is pretty big, I think. Um, the overall meta breakdown, if you look at the the top thirty two, the, the kind of notable buckets that I saw were there were 12 aggro decks. Out of the top 32, which is pretty big, you know, more than a third, Yeah, uh, five Titan, five decks I would call control, five decks that were either green Tron or Eldrazi Tron and only four mid-range decks. And then from there, uh, that's it. Actually, that's all 32. That's it. That's the tweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um,
1: I got to say, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that humans can still step up and, and win a tournament. Like this. this is a, it's like you said, it's a big, big Swiss here.
2: Yeah, it feels like with that many ADOs, it could have been like GP sized, right? Like, is this a 600 700 person tournament? I think the limit was only 650 people were allowed to be in it, so maybe they're around that many. I don't know. Let's go on. So, in the card by card breakdown that uh, Goldfish always so helpfully provides. There's nothing too surprising on these, but I will say that the number one played card in this tournament, in the top 32, was Lightning Bolt. There were 45 Lightning Bolts in the top 32, and they were, appeared in 40% of the decks. Yes, Stan, I knew you'd be excited about that.
0: We're back, baby.
2: I haven't cast a Lightning Bolt in so many months. Shane hasn't cast a Lightning Bolt since 2017.
0: Yeah, but all of these lightning bolt decks were either burn or like taking
2: turns, which had two of them. There were also a lot of mono red prowess. There was, there was a good amount of mono red prowess in that aggro. So, yeah. the uh, There were also 30 Arkham's Astrolabes in the top 32, and those appeared oh, in boy. 25% of the decks. So,. Yikes, a little bit, I it's guess. Almost
1: like cheap, useful artifacts that
2: replace themselves and fix mana are, are easy to run. Yeah, let's remember that next time we see a spoiler that has a card like this, where, where I go, this is an awesome card in draft. <laughs> uh, so finally, the last thing I thought was interesting is that Dismember Veil and Graph Diggers Cage, we're in approximately 40% of decks in some quantity as well, somewhere between 35 and 45% for each one of those. And Uro appeared in almost a third of the decks, it appeared in 28%. Get your Uros, I guess. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, two lists that really stood out to me that seemed super fun. One is a deck I know that Stan's been enjoying lately, which is Red Black on Earth with uh, Kroxa, element, Skelemental, Dark Confidant on Earth. Stan, how are you feeling about this right now?
1: <clears throat> I'm going to need to break this back out. Skelemental.
2: <laughs> it's back.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. Kroxa has given this deck a whole new angle that basically lets you cut things like Gurmog Angler or Tassigur, and now you have this giant threat that goes toe-to-toe with, like, a lot of the big creatures out there. So I like that a lot. It's more of a mid range deck than I think it used to be. When Faithless Looting was around, you could be super aggressive with um, Black, Black, Haste if the opponent has 10 life or less.
2: Uh, yeah.
0: That card? Bloodgast.
2: Bloodgast. Thank yeah.
0: you. Yeah, yeah I used to have like Bloodgast and Flame Wake Phoenix. Uh, and then you would just do like.
2: Kind of like Hollow One, basically. It's like a Hollow One shell. It was a little bit more like
0: Hollow One, but more mid-rangey. Now we're getting a little bit more. Or I'm sorry, that was like Hollow One, but a little more aggressive. And I feel like now we're getting even more mid-rangey, because you're up to like three Liliana of the Veil. Vale. In doing some testing with this deck lately, a card that I've been particularly impressed with is Ransack the Lab, even though it seems pretty fair on paper. This is the card that's one in a black sorcery. Look at the top three cards of your library, put one in your hand, the other two into your graveyard. Really great way to fill up the yard, put things like Croxa in there because even though playing Kroxa from your hand is good, playing it straight from the graveyard is also pretty good.
2: Yeah, it's not in this particular list that was in the super qualifier, but it's definitely a card that I've seen people talking about in conjunction with these type of decks as they reemerge in modern. Uh, Alright, love to talk about this deck some more, but let's let's go on.
0: No, let's keep talking about it.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're going to do a dive down on this instead of mono-white uh, Heliod. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the other deck that I wanted to talk about really quickly was the ninth place deck, which is a teemer Snow kind of mid-rangey deck that I would call Planeswalker Control that is essentially using the kind of um, Ponza engine of Arbor Elf and Utopia Sprawl to be able to power out Planeswalkers. It's got 3 Ren and 6, 2 Ashiok Dream Render, 2 Royal Scions, 1 Chandra Torched Defiance, and 2 Jason Mind Sculptor for a total of 10 Planeswalkers in the main deck. It's got 3 Uros, 2 Tarmogoyfs. This is a very interesting deck to me. It went 7-1 in the Swiss. Must have missed the top 8 on Tiebreakers.
0: This deck has some weird non-bows in the main. Ashiok plus Tarmogoyf? I think that's pretty weird. Main deck, Ashiok, Dream Render in general, I think is kind of weird.
2: People are searching, you know?
0: People be searching.
2: Yeah, and it's not, it's not like it's... Yeah, I guess you're getting rid of your opponent's graveyard, so your Tarmogoyf go down a little bit. Plus, you have
0: Uro. Uro and Tarmogoyf in the same deck. I just... I'm surprised that it worked seemingly as well as it did. Hmm. Maybe they sideboarded aggressively and like took part, one half of that synergy out. Or anti-synergy, rather.
2: Yeah, it's a good point.
0: I do think it's cool that they have main deck Royal Scions as another way to fuel the yard, get Uro right in there, maybe make your Tarmago grow a little bit.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more I look at this, the more I kind of think Tarmogorff feels not that great in this deck, but I didn't come in ninth place at this giant tournament, so. You're
0: not Masumaro?
2: No, I'm not secretly Masumaro. I just want to make a
0: quick aside before we move on. Utopia Sprawl plus Arbor Elf? has been the key component of this red, green, like, Ponza deck forever. And that deck has been evolving a little bit lately as well. And I've been seeing that deck pop up a lot. And I got to say, I think it's really impressive. And I feel like if I were to make a unsolicited, bold statement that no one was expecting to hear today, I feel like red, green Ponza is literally a deck to watch right now.
2: I think so. Yeah, I kind of feel like it's a little bit on the decline after Once Upon a Time got banned, but there was uh, a deck that went six two in this tournament. That was a red green mid range, kind of a big Ponza deck down at the end of the um, down at the end of the Swiss standings. That had four Glory Bringer in modern in the main deck.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So definitely something to keep an eye on. All right, let's move on to Pioneer. All right. Um,
1: Let me talk about Pioneer, please. I want to talk about it. So we'll take a little bit less time on this one since we do have a deck dive in front of us, but let's run through this top eight. So we had uh, Gull Dukat, who we talked about, what, a couple weeks ago, um, winning it with Demir Inverter. So don't think it's gone yet. Still can win a tournament. Second place, a Guy in Soul list by Anders. And this is essentially... The It In Soul deck that we know, and it's adding a splash of white to play All That Glitters, which is a very handy uh, pump aura that counts your enchantments and your artifacts, importantly. So that's why it's better in this deck than what Ethereal Armor was in our SRAM Auras deck dive. It also has some Springleaf
2: drums, right? Yes. And one other thing that it's using those Springleaf drums for, by the way, is four... Fatal push and four thoughtsees in the uh in the sideboard. That's wow! Yeah, I'm I'm impressed that worked. I mean, it does have aether hub,
1: it does have four mana confluence, it does have four aspire of industry, so it's not
2: that loose. And four drum. So I I think yeah. it's pretty interesting to see someone want to kind of go all in on like a big version of the of you know big version of buff and then post board be able to bring in a bunch of interaction.
0: In the very early days of Pioneer, when people were first starting to play in Seoul and it put up results, you know, far and wide, all that glitters was a staple that then got taken mm-hmm. out when more people started to play Smuggler's Copter, get a little more aggressive, a little faster, clean up your man a little bit. I do think it's interesting now that whatever conditions of the format, you know, motivated this change, that you can sort of go back to this, all, this, all that glitters plan.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is like the affinity of Pioneer, and it's kind of going back to that even more strongly, I think. Just a, a super aggro game one. Um, third
2: place, we have another interesting list. It's like, what, like mono white Pride Mate? Yeah, I mean, it's really a Heliod deck. It's just not a build of Heliod that we're going to be talking about today where it's, um, it's using life gain cards like... A Johnny's Pride Might and things like that in -hmm. conjunction with the Heliod and Walking Ballista combo to be able to power out the combo earlier or just make it a little bit more resilient. Uh, I do want to put a little asterisk next to the fact that it is playing four Legion's Landing uh, in the main deck as a one drop, which I thought was pretty cool. It also has Healer's Hawk and Alciate of Life's Bounty. It has all these one mana life gain Ah, uh, lifelink cards. Yeah, this really wants to combo. Yeah. So it's interesting to see that. I mean, it, these this deck. You know, I don't. You know, Johnny's Pride Might is a card that pops up every <laughs> once in a while. It gets annoyingly huge, though. Sometimes I will say, and especially if you're going to think you're going to be playing against a bunch of card uh, decks that have red removal, then I could see a deck like this being pretty good. The problem is when Fatal Push is the best uh, removal spell in your format. I mean, it looks like they beat a fatal push deck to get to third place. Potentially, yeah.
1: Next up, uh, that fatal push deck by uh, Laluba. It's another variant of mono black aggro. Uh, they're one of their four. F- one of their dr- two drops of choice in this deck is four gifted Aetherborn, which is a card. Yeah, what's up with that? You used to play this deck. That's kind of random, right? I don't know. Um, I, some people have said that Gifted Aetherborn is essentially unplayable in Pioneer, but clearly this person did just fine with it. I mean, Lifelink and Death Touch does work when someone's trying to aggro past you. So maybe in heavy aggro creature decks, when you're facing them down, you want to be able to just get whatever they're attacking with off the board, unless it's indestructible, I suppose. Um, Fifth place, we have a Bant Spirits. This is extremely stock, just you know it's what is just a spirit spirit four ofs yeah it's collecting company it's
2: all four ofs it is nine four ofs and then lands mm-hmm. <laughs> which is beautiful <laughs> in its own way
0: i love that they have two a null in the sideboard mm-hmm. has anyone been blown out by a null yet because i certainly have
2: not yet i was not blown out by it but i have blown out some people with it yes
0: what a card what a great one mana counter spell
2: uh,
1: sixth place Sultai Delirium. It's back after we said it was kind of falling off last week, apparently. Uh, DeZeds brings it and takes sixth place. I mean, it's just a you know, pile of Sultai mid-range cards. Yep. Next up is a Mono White Devotion deck which is the entire subject of this episode, by the way. This one is interesting build. We'll see if this for Karn the Great Creator sticks around or if this is a novelty for now. But, you know, everyone loves Karn the Great Creator. It's a busted card, so why not put it in a devotion deck making a bunch of mana, I suppose. Eighth place, we have another inverter build. This is a little bit different, though, right?
2: Yeah, it's got some extra... It's got a couple of extra um, kill conditions and it's got a Cry the Carnarium main. So it's got an Ashiok Nightmare Muse, which is not really part of the combo main. It's also got a Scarab God main. Yeah, just main. Yeah, which I think is just maybe to have it have a little bit more of a, of an alternate win plan for in case uh, the inverter plan doesn't work out. You know, it, it's interesting to see Scarab God in particular because you can't really bring back and Inverter Truth a bunch of times with the Scarab God. I guess maybe you can, but um, you, you I guess you're really looking at upgrading your Thassa's Oracles occasionally and things like that, or just attacking with the Scarab God itself since it's re- so resilient. But um, you know, trying to just move this deck forward a little bit. I
0: actually think Ashyok is is really interesting here. I played against an Inverter deck running Ashiok Nightmare Muse while I was doing my testing for Mm mono-white. And even with like a Gideon and a Heliad out, once they got Ashiok on the board, they were able to deal with all of my permanents because of that minus three return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand. Then that player exiles a card from their hand. Yeah. I found that to be really strong. And I wonder if this particular version of Inverter is actually starting to tune against the hate
2: yeah, I mean, it's certainly packing some extra interaction and win conditions, right? Because a a, a Planeswalker that pluses to give you a 2-3, I think is pretty good, right? Like That's a big card to get for a plus. And then also, uh, like you said, that minus three ability on Ashiok is pretty big. One of the notes that I had in here was just wanting to note that it's you know, there's two different decks that run Ashiok as a as a one of in the in this top eight. And I f- it feels like maybe it's a card to keep an eye on or maybe pick up some copies of if you play either one of these style of decks, just because if people are starting to play it just for value, basically, it doesn't feel like a tech card. It just feels like a good card that does a lot of stuff to me when I look at it. So maybe go pick out some Ashiok Nightmare Muses.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the
2: rest of the tournament, right? This is another huge event. What four ninos? This is a nine-round Swiss, yeah, and had four ninos. Oh boy! So, what does that mean for nine rounds? What's the what's the base for that? I mean, I, I don't know how to do the math to figure that out. I think it's like six or seven hundred people. Yeah, this is another one of those things where if a Grand Prix had four ninos, it would be you know that's kind of Grand Prix level size stuff where you you go through nine rounds of Swiss and there's three or four ninos at the end of that. So it's a big tournament.
1: So supposedly you can have between like 227 and 409. So that's still, I mean, that's huge. When you look at a, a pioneer league, typically has about 900 people. That's in some point in the league, which you can do over any number of days, like potentially a third of those people were in one tournament that cost $40 to enter. Yeah.
2: I would have done it. If I had the, if I had the right time, if the tournament was scheduled at the right time, I'd, I'd be into it. I'm definitely looking to get into a premier event and just waste some money sometime soon because I will get crushed. But. <laughs> Yeah, so let's talk about the overall top 32 really quickly. There were of the archetypes that there were there's basically uh, 12 aggro decks in tons of different flavors. So I think that's, you know, you can definitely still play aggro in Pioneer if you want to, whether it's in soul or black or there's there's a red deck. Uh, a couple of other ones from there. There were eight combo decks in this top 32, looking at Breach and Inverter as those two archetypes. There were four Inverter and four Breach for being kind of like your solid combo decks. There were five Heliod-based decks in this top 32. Um, Dang. Yeah, I have that listed as Aggro Combo. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, but um, depending on which camp you throw that into, there were five of those. There were three Black-Green-based mid-range decks and three Ramp decks as well. Be aggressive. Be, be aggressive. (laughs) Yeah. In individual cards, again, thanks to the work of Magic, uh, sorry, of MTG Goldfish, the number one played card in this tournament was Mystical Dispute. Holy moly. 61 copies in the top 32, which means that there was about two per deck. It was played in 62% of the decks in total. That is a lot. Hmm. I
0: don't think it's in any of those mono-white Heliod decks, personally. Uh, It's not
2: in those. It's not in the mono-red deck that we saw. It's not in the mono-black deck that we saw. So I think there's a lot of people stocking up with a lot of mystical disputes. Um, Thoughtseize was next with 40 copies in 31% of decks, and Fatal Push is basically the same number of decks. So Thoughtseize and Fatal Push still massive pillars of the format. The most played creature was Selfless Spirit. Really? Yep. 29 copies, I think it was. It was played in Spirits, of course, and also one of the Heliod decks was running it. Uh, Maybe a couple other decks, but that's what it was. Finally, the one deck list that kind of stood out to me, I felt like tons of these decks were stock, but uh, the biggest one that stood out was a blue-green ramp deck with Uro and a bunch of other fun cards. Shane, you were playing a deck like this a couple of weeks ago our promise into Eugene and all those friends. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's essentially kind of just like a green, that's the like old green ramp deck, splashing blue for a uh, and Grow spiral.
2: Yep. More or less. And it's got a sandworm convergence. Why not? In the main as a, as a kill condition, which is a uh, sweet card from Amonkhet limited. I don't know if you ever had the, the pleasure of playing with or against one of those, but one of the, uh, S-tier limited bombs of limited bombs, I think. Yeah, that looks absurd. Awesome. So what do you guys think about these two formats? Looking good. Yeah, I think so too.
0: It does seem like you really have to either play an aggressive deck or have a way to beat aggressive decks because they seem to be the bulk of both meta shares
2: yep that's magic baby I feel like I feel like maybe when mag- when we're in that state where it's like beat aggressive decks or be an aggressive deck it's probably pretty good because it's not hard to have a plan against aggressive aggressive decks you know my take
1: yeah I think I'm I'm happy with this I mean the fact that like We're even seeing Lotus Breach going 7-2 when everyone's like, yeah, Lotus Breach got figured out. Everyone's going to beat it. Like It's just like, well, I'm still here, jerks. Where's Where's your damping spheres now? Play what you like. Bunch of good decks. Pretty even power level. Nothing too broken. I can't say the same about Modern, but we saw a pretty awesome selection of decks do well in Modern as well. It does
0: seem like in both of these formats... There isn't necessarily a go-to best deck, but there is a a class of cards that stand above the rest, and like the top decks will probably have like some number of these cards within them. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't feel like anything is really cleaning up every matchup, but you know you're going to deal with like some number of mystical disputes or veil of summer or you know whatever.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. I wonder if. There's a future episode in that kind of topic. Like, what is the, what are the cards, the cards that really define these formats? But the actual, the
1: pillars of the format. Now that we actually know the pillars of the format, yeah, the cards of our lives.
2: Exactly. Well, awesome. So coming up next, we're going to take a look at what I think is the best deck in Pioneer. Even though Stan said there was no clear best deck, uh, Mono White Devotion. Stay with us.
1: And we are back. And as Dave and Stan mentioned earlier, today we are going to be covering one of the most powerful and popular decks in Pioneer right now. And that's Mono White Devotion. And we've talked about this a little bit in some past episodes. But you know, when Theros Beyond Death hit the shelves, and even before, when, it, when the spoilers were coming out, everyone took note of Heliod Sun-Crowned. And we're looking for ways to play that card. And since it hit the shelves and was able to be played in the format, this deck has been a top performer showing up at you know, pretty much every level of tournament play. It's, it's good at the LGS, it's good on the leagues, and it's doing well in tournaments. And lately, it appears to have become perhaps the top deck in Pioneer. And it's going to be something you're going to see no matter you know, any event you're playing in.
2: Yeah, I mean, we wanted to talk about this deck, of course, for a couple reasons, one, we already did a deck dive on the modern version of this deck. We almost tried to jam this deck into that episode as well, and we just realized we couldn't, especially given how complex modern is and how complex this deck is. So we wanted to come back and do this. We almost did those episodes back to back, and uh, we just needed a little break. So now we're back for more Heliod Infiniteness. Um, the other thing is. You know, a couple of weeks ago, everybody thought that something was going to be banned in Pioneer, right? Specifically from Inverter. And it looks like after the data came out that Inverter was, quote unquote, just a 50% deck. um, And we already felt like it was a little bit on the wane because of Mono White anyway at that point. um, We started to look around and see that this might be the Case And so the plausible reason is that this deck is the reason that nothing was banned from Inverter, I think. And finally, the deck is everywhere. It's everywhere right now. Shane mentioned that a minute ago. It's all over the place. I did a Pioneer League or two with this. I had many mirror matches, so I think you need to know what's going on with this deck so you can be sure to beat it. mm mm-hmm. So like we
1: always do uh, in covering Mono White Devotion Day, we're going to be looking at what the deck is, a little bit kind of how it was created and evolved over time, the general goals and strategies of the deck, and how the cards in the deck are supporting the execution of those strategies, Um, strategies that we discovered or know of for playing with and uh, importantly, as Dave said, against the deck, some sideboard strategies and cards that are being run right now and our kind of overall thoughts and feelings on the deck now and perhaps in the near future
0: but before we get into all that i I gotta ask you guys did you like playing mono white heliad
2: stan i'm gonna ask you to answer that first did you like playing mono white heliad i did yes i know why i
1: can tell you why i know why you guys both like playing this deck i i didn't say that yet Oh, I know you do, though, Dave. I can tell. You know why? This deck has false tempo, because <laughs> it because it because it threatens combos, so you can mess with people.
0: Mm. I I don't know if that was the reason I would have pointed to, but that is interesting. Everyone is afraid to tap out against Mono White Heliod.
2: That's true, and uh, you should be. <laughs> yeah, for sure, Dave. What did you feel though, for real? Uh you know I. Th- Ah boy. I, I don't know if this is like the deck that I'm gonna play right now in my life, uh in this format. I think I'm gonna try to go aggro, but it's a very good deck. It's super powerful. I just don't know if like I would want to grind out like five leagues playing it because of the clicking. So much clicking. But I did get a gaming mouse. Check it out. Hey. It's got some buttons, like we talked about. Oh man, look at that. Oh Logitech boy, just like me. Look at all those buttons. And uh, that helps a ton, actually, Stan. So thanks for the suggestion. Uh, so that helps with this deck. So I, I think I would, if I was getting really serious about Pioneer, like tournament-wise, like I'm really going to go into one of those big championships, I, I would consider this deck. But I don't think it's high on my list for like enjoyment.
0: Yeah. I thought it was cool that I just had all these different ways to play the deck. And then every game was kind of like this new puzzle to solve.
1: Mm -hmm. i love decks like that
0: yeah there's like a lot of similarities you know across a hundred games you'll find maybe like what four or five different ways to try to achieve your goal but that being said like no two games are the same oftentimes so i thought that was a really cool feature
2: not a bug shane how about you uh i like it fine um
1: I think I do agree with Stan that I do like the variety of sort of game plans that one can execute and like the lines that you have to think about. But I think I can sort of scratch that same itch with like a Karn the Great Creator based deck, which is why the mono white deck we talked about in the breakdown with Karn the Great Creator might be something I'm looking at soon. (laughs) Because I just, I I love that card because it makes me think about lines in a weird way, like plan my turns really differently. Is that why when we were
0: talking about that deck, you took your glasses off and started polishing them with your microfiber? <laughs>
1: uh,
2: yes, exactly. I thought he started looking through his sideboard when we were talking about that deck. <laughs> I just started. I started sketching on a quick wishboard. He's like, "I'm going to liquid metal coat your uh, your microphone." So,
1: enough about us. Yes, let's let's talk about this deck. What is this deck, right? So fundamentally, I think it's sort of safest to call this deck just a white-based aggressive deck, but it has a lot of other facets and axes of play. And so it can leverage the power of Nykthos, and the Nyx for your mana acceleration. It can be an instant win combo uh, that has a number of early enablers. And like I said before, Heliod Suncrowned is really what makes this deck a thing that people wanted to build it all, and I, I'm fairly certain this would not be a deck without Heliod, Sun Suncrown, so let's go over what this card does. I know you've heard us talk about this before, so we won't belabor it too much, but it's two and a white for a 5-5 five, five legendary enchantment. God, indestructible, but it's not a creature until your devotion to white is, uh, gr- is 5 or greater, but it has static text, as has ability, so whenever you gain life, you can put a 1-1 counter on a target creature or enchantment you control. So that's the enchantment part. But it also has an activated ability for 1 on a white that gives another target creature lifelink until end of turn. So this was immediately identified as a relatively straightforward two-card combo between Heliod and Walking Ballista. And people ban it. Yeah, people were like talking about ban how, oh man, Ballista's gonna Ballista's gonna hit the ban really soon. It's still here, a couple months later. Um, and Heliod's just a great creature, even without that easy combo. Like it's it's three mana, it's they're two good abilities, and then it's a five-five indestructible attacker and blocker when you need it to be, when you have it online. So the rest of the deck is designed to enable the devotion
2: and that's good. It works. Yeah, that's one of the huge differences between the modern version of the deck and this pioneer version of the deck, of course, is that in modern, when you play with Heliod, it is never ever a creature. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like when we were testing with that, it would happen like once out of every ten games. In this, it's a main part of your plan and it happens all the time, incidentally, because of the creatures that are in this deck. It just It's just on a lot more.
0: Yeah, oftentimes it only takes two other permanents to get it online. Sometimes only one other permanent. Or one, yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Um, So a little bit of brief history. So it's funny. A lot of the fundamental pieces of this deck were identified pretty much immediately. And an early version of this deck was in the January 19th Pioneer Challenge. So the set was legal. It showed up in the challenge right away. And it's like, what like 85-90% the same? I mean, we haven't had a number of sets to iterate on the deck, but it's still something to be said where you know it's not like White has a bevy of insanely good cards to be putting in this deck, and so it hasn't really changed all that much besides kind of you know minimal changes to be refinements against the changing metagame, like fighting against Inverter, fighting against other decks that have reared their
2: head. So let's talk about the goals of the deck. Because like you said, there are multiple different plans. So I'll talk about the
1: combo part because I already kind of got at it a little bit. So the the, the two-card combo between Helion and Ballista can really threaten the opponent nearly at any time. And so what this does is it causes them to be holding up mana if they're a removal-based deck or an interactive deck at all. Because they need to remove the walking Ballista If you cast it and can win from there. So that creates a cool little tempo advantage on your end um, because they can't really always be playing to the board or playing the spells they want to be playing. Or you can just threaten winning on the spot versus decks that don't have much or any interaction at all. So the way this works is if you have two counters on a ballista, two counters. Or if it is a 1-1 one, one base power creature with like a Gideon emblem, which we'll get to you later, you can pay one and a white with your Heliod, give Walking Ballista lifelink, ping the opponent, and then put the counter back on Ballista because it triggers the whenever you gain life trigger of Heliod. And then you just repeat that process over and over again. So... The scare was that this was super easy to enable, but people kind of weren't really doing the math on how much mana that really requires to have a two counter ballista online, especially like on turn four. But you can do it in this deck with another piece in the puzzle. And this deck runs like typically about three separate pieces of that puzzle in a couple in multiple copies. And Importantly, these aren't just enablers. They're also just good cards on their own, and they can also contribute to the devotion strategy of the deck. So we have a Kintree Spirit. Uh, She's a white, white 2-2 Spirit Soldier. What's cool about her is whenever another non-token creature ETBs, you bolster uh, under your control, you bolster one. And what bolster is is you take the creature with the least toughness and put a counter on it. So uh, on your turn four, You can cast a two-mana Ballista, leaving two-mana open. She bolsters it up to a two-counter Ballista. Then you use the other two-mana to do that Heliod combo we just talked about. Uh, Daxos, Blessed by the Sun, does a very similar thing. He is a white-white enchantment creature, 2-2. Uh, His toughness is equal to your devotion in white, which can be really nice because it just makes a really huge blocker sometimes that people just can't get around. Uh, Whenever another creature you control enters the battlefield or dies, you gain one life. So again, uh, turn four, you cast a two mana walking ballista, you gain a life, you put the counter on the uh, walking ballista that triggers from Heliod's life gain trigger, then you use the other two mana to do the combo. And similarly, a Range. It's a place. This is this is the land that is in the what Mystic Sanctuary cycle. So, a Dwarven Mine. A yeah, Dwarven Mine. Yeah, some some interesting. These are surprisingly powerful lands. So, one, it can be. It's a Plains. So it's a typed land, which means you can get it with your uh, what the creature we'll talk about later, Night of the White Orchid. Yep. So that's pretty cool. But that's not really necessary for doing this combo. So what this land does is ETB is tapped unless you control three or other planes. So on turn four, enters the battlefield untapped. When it enters the battlefield untapped, put a one-one counter on target creature you control. So let's say this scenario, you have you've hit your land drops four turns running. Planes, planes, planes. And then on turn four, you play you you first use your two mana to cast a ballista. 1-1 one, one Ballista, play this down. It puts that 1-1 one, one counter onto your Ballista, probably, and you use your other two remaining mana, that you, including this idyllic range you just played, and you activate Heliod's Life Lake ability, and again, go to town.
2: Click, click, click. Yeah. Clickety-click, click. Stuff that emerges really quickly when you play this deck, right, is all these like side pieces that help enable getting Ballista into turn... More cheaply into play more cheaply that's basically what the name of the game is with all this stuff how can you how can I ca- cast ballista for only two mana so that I then have two mana open to do heliod's activated ability that's the whole story with this the combo part of the deck exactly but even if it's
1: not happening on four turn four the threat of the combo can always sort of exist there like if you have six mana then you just cast a you know a four mana ballista and then use the other two mana you have left to uh, kill off the opponent. And especially That's especially easy when you have Nykthos online and a bunch of White Pips of Devotion. That puts pressure on the way the opponent has to sort of play their game as well.
2: Of course, much like Splinter Twin, when you're doing the combo stuff, you have to keep an eye out on what uh, you think your opponent has in hand, and what pieces of interaction they have available themselves, because it's not an end. You know, it's 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 not a super vulnerable combo, but it's not a combo that's super difficult to interact with. Exactly. So so you have to keep an eye out for when your moment is, and a lot of the fun in playing a deck like this is that kind of like game of chicken, right? Is like, can I go for the combo now? No, yes, can I do it now? No, yes. So it's it's kind of like always evaluating the situation to figure out when that happens. So that's the first plan.
0: The next plan is the beatdown plan. Turning creatures sideways. And this deck can definitely beat down by putting pressure on opponents who aren't able to keep up with your creatures or just putting bodies in the way of your opponent's attackers. Especially once Heliod is online and you have mana available to use, you can begin putting counters on your creatures with the lifelink ability, triggering the life gain trigger, and get them too large for your opponents to handle outright. Along with Anafenza and Daxos, some of the important early drops include Knight of the White Orchid, White White for a 2-2, Human Knight first strike, When the knight enters the battlefield, if an opponent controls more lands than you, you may search your library for a planes card, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. As Shane had mentioned before, that means you can get a non-basic planes. In this case, you're usually getting the idyllic grange. It's also white-white, which is a really important way to build up Heliod's devotion. It's one of the best ways to make sure Heliod is a creature on turn 3 or turn 4. you don't have a walking bliss then you need to start attacking with it.
2: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this card for a minute because it's it's really it's not an easy card to play with I think um, because you often have to find you can't play it before turn three right. You really can't play it on turn two is something to, to keep in mind unless you don't care about searching up the land. Yeah. And if you don't care about searching up the land then this card is just like really bad. <laughs> I think, in a lot of ways. Like a 2-2 vanilla, I mean, it's a, it's got first strike, but a 2 first first striker for two is a totally classic white card, but that's like a limited staple. That's not something you want in your constructed deck.
1: I mean, I do feel that first strike is a slightly underrated keyword in an aggressive deck that can move counters around. And what's, what's really cool about the first strike ability is it lets you get some interesting blowouts with Heliod. Because if you give it the knight first strike, I mean, if you give the knight lifelink, it strikes first and it triggers the lifelink ability. And so you can like put, a, you can put uh, that 1-1 one, one counter on other creatures if you want. And it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting, tricky play. And it also
2: just, it just attacks really well, you know what I mean, with, with first strike especially. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, for me, I thought a lot about taking this card out when you were on the play. Because if I needed more interaction or something like that, I was definitely looking at it going, do I want this card in this matchup where I want to bring in more interaction and I'm not gonna get the land off of this card unless I play it on turn four? Or really, you know, my yeah. my turn three, my you know, like it's just really kinda gross in that way to me.
1: That's an important thing to think about. Like it's it's not even though it's a four of, it's not so integral to the
2: game plan of the deck. That you can't think about shaving it on the play. Yeah, it's super good on the draw. Like, there's no, I don't think there's any question about that. But the other thing is, when you are playing this card, make sure that you don't, that you are thinking about playing it before you make your land drop for Mm -hmm. on turn three, right? So drop it. That's the thing that's really great about this card. You know, there's two situations where this card is super good. One is when you have another two drop to play on turn two. That's fantastic. When you have this in Daxos or this in Anafenza and you can just play it out that way. And then on turn mm-hmm. three, you kind of go like play my knight, drop my third land, the knight brings a fourth card, fourth planes into play, and then I can play another two drop. Like that is pretty sweet. And so you can you can really ramp ahead with stuff like that, but it's just like it's, there's a lot of situational stuff going on with making knight of the work white orchid good.
1: Also, don't forget that you can get the idyllic range. Yeah, like it, there's so many times like, you know, my magic online land picker window pops up. It's like, you know, five by five pixels and so I'm like quickly dragging it to be a big window and like just grabbing the first planes I see. It, and I'm like, oh, I kind of got, got that idyllic range.
0: I do agree with you, Dave, that this card is super underpowered and I kind of wish we had this conversation sooner because I wasn't considering its role in the player or draw dynamic. I will say, though, that I would side it out a lot. Yeah. If there was a matchup where I knew I needed interaction, it was obvious that this is just the weakest creature in the 60, so I would just take it out, no questions asked. Yeah. But maybe it was worth keeping in more often on the draw. I I really hadn't even considered that.
2: I think it just depends on what you think you're going to get out of it. I mean, there are some decks like with the low interaction deck where maybe you go like, I can play Walking Ballista on turn two as a 1-1 and then fetch up an idyllic range, potentially, you know, blah, blah, blah. So maybe there's some lines where you get incidental value with that. But at any rate, don't spend, you know, this isn't Night of the White Orchid cast, but uh, there were a lot of interesting things about this card, I thought. And it's a card that I think is worth keeping an eye on in Pioneer anyway, but let's go on.
0: Well, Dave, if you thought Knight of the White Orchid was lackluster, wait until you hear about this next card. Uh... Thraben Inspector, Yeah, a single white mana for a 1-2 human soldier when it enters the battlefield. Investigate, which means create a colorless clue artifact token with two mana, pay two mana of any color, sacrifice this artifact, draw a card. Probably the best one drop white has to offer, unless we're t- talking about... Healing Falcons, or whatever that bird is called.
2: Healer's Hawk, my friend. Healer's Hawk. Healer's Hawk. Uh, Healer's Hummingbird. Yeah.
0: And I will say, that clue was not nothing. Because this deck doesn't have a ton of velocity, but I don't know if that always makes this card worthy of a slot in the deck. But because you would actually get to go through your deck every once in a while, I found that this was a little bit less... You know, embarrassing than Night of the White Orchid could have been.
2: Yeah, I will say that that deck list that I that was in the um, super qualifier that had four legions landing in the kind of one drops slot in the life gain deck definitely made me wonder if like, do I just want a lifelink creature instead? Like, because a lifelink creature actually, if you get to attack with it, just enables you to play a cheaper walking ballista that. You know, you can then attack with drop the token. You know, if you have heliot out, you play a walking ballista for two attack with a lifelink one, one, you gain life. You get to. Put a token on, so you have to like involve the combat step in it. But it it made me wonder; it definitely gave me pause if there was like better options than Inspector out there. I just really wish that there was some kind of incidental synergy with the token to make it a little bit more worthwhile. The other thing is, you know, I said a minute ago that uh, Knight of the White Orchid is better when you have something to do on turn two that is not White of the Knight of the White Orchid and. A clue to cracking a clue token is definitely qualifies for that. So even though there's not like a zillion two drops in this deck, the clue token activation can make your turn two worthwhile when you're trying to set yourself up for a night ramp play on turn three. Shane,
1: thoughts? Thoughts on Third Inspector, it's fine. I mean it's just it's it's just good to be able to use your mana, especially in a deck that makes a bunch of mana. Yep. Like this deck's supposed to do. So it's fine. Let's talk about the owl. Arcanist owl hoo hoo um a bunch of azorius split mana symbols it's a 4 blue white blue white blue white blue white um, woo. hoo hoo <laughs> hoo <laughs> um for a 3 3 flying bird artifact um so your robotic owl it's it's a drone when Arcanist all ETBs, you get to look at the top four creatures, top four cards of your library. You can reveal an artifact or enchantment, put it in your hand, put the rest in the bottom of your library. So this adds four pips of devotion. That's kind of its main deal. And the incidental little uh, little tutor, a little bit of the dig through your deck, The
2: to get, there's a lot of cards in your deck this hits. It's just about as good as Once Upon a Time in this deck.
1: Uh <laughs> I, I will I, I I want to remember this now. Ask me ask me about um how well I hit on my Arcanist dollars later, because it was very bad. Um it, it you know, it can get your Heliod, it can get a Daxos, it can get a Walking Ballista, it can get a bunch of it can get your enchantment-based removal. It's pretty handy just to dig through and find the cards you need. Yeah.
0: I think it's interesting that it kind of checks every box that this deck needs. It's both a good aggressive creature because it's a 3-3 body that flies is not bad at all. It digs for all your combo pieces, which I think is relevant. And it adds to your Heliod Devotion. And quite frankly, I think even if it was missing one of those two factors, it might still be playable. Like if it was, say, two white-white, you'd still run it in this deck just because being able to dig and being able to fly with white mana is not nothing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Um, But Stan, how do these creatures that aren't that amazing actually play into like a beatdown plan?
0: Poorly. But sometimes it's all you have. And it really helps when you have them in tandem. Because you're likely generating some tempo advantage by your opponents playing Afraid of the Combo. You can strain their removal with your small creatures that are growing larger and enabling Heliod to be a 5-5 indestructible attacker. Sometimes they're gaining you a couple points of life here and there if you have extra mana to spend. Not to mention, like sometimes placing early pressure on your opponents in those first few turns, essentially forcing them to use a removal spell, could help clear the way for your walking ballista later on.
2: Yeah, but like real talk, this is not... Yeah, we, we said earlier you know there's multiple plans in this deck and there's there's plans in this deck but i i mean what do you think like you win games off of a buffed knight a bird and a daxos sometimes but really what you're doing is i'm like you're winning via the combo right like i mean do you feel like the split is 50 50- 50 ish, because I felt like it was very much like I'm going for the combo, and uh when the I'll I'll beat you down for a little bit, but when the coast is clear, I'm going for the combo, and that's really how I'm winning in any complicated in any situation that gets complicated.
0: I will say of these creatures that we've mentioned so far, the bird is the only one that has ever won me games. Because it can not Heliod? Well, Dave's talking about the creatures apropos of the combo. Sure. I'm saying if I can't get the combo online, swinging with a three, three flyer against anything except spirits is actually okay. Especially yeah. if you've got like a Gideon on the board to do some Gideon stuff.
2: Right. I don't
1: know. I've, I've played some games and I've seen streamers play some games where they're, they're, they're going big, they're going wide and tall. You know I mean? They get, they get a board that's developed they're They have a bunch of mana to make a bunch of creatures, lifelink, link. With Heliod. They're putting a bunch of counters all over the place. And it it, it gets there. It can you can really make a, a board of of strong creatures. And if you're gaining life, it's like you're you're doing just fine.
2: Yeah, maybe that's the the aspect of the plan that I didn't get to do quite often, which is having a bunch of devotion, using those to do to do a bunch of Activations of Heliod over and over again to be able to make my creatures bigger instead of kind of relying on the combo that that makes some sense that does make the, the a kind of creature plan a lot more plausible right it's just well they're just going to get bigger every turn and it's not just one of them is going to get bigger every turn all of them are going to get bigger every turn so that that makes sense mm-hmm. so let's talk about the mana engine though because that that is an important part of the deck. So, since devotion is in the name of this deck, as people say it, uh, you know, Nikthos is here, and it enables some great stuff in the deck. One thing that is problematic about Nikthos, of course, is that it provides a colorless mana. Mm-hmm. But if you spend two and tap it, it makes as much mana of any color that uh, that you choose in uh, a number equal to the devotion you have to it. Um, so it's good. You know, people aren't always running a full play set in this deck. Sometimes they're running three instead of four. But, um, Nykthos lets you do a lot of different stuff. It can let you quickly deploy your hand. It can let you make a giant walking ballista. It can let you kind of save up for one massive turn, which is interesting. So you can kind of like play around with your opponent a little bit and then suddenly drop three creatures on a turn. You can do some interesting things where you kind of use, uh, drop Arcanist Owl, then find a way to activate Nykthos, then drop a whole bunch of cards off the draw after Arcanist Owl because it pro- that provides so much kind of devotion on its own. Uh, and the thing that Shane mentioned is just fueling a bunch of life gain with activations from Heliod, which so there is one mana sink in this deck for giant Nykthos pulls, and it is Heliod, really. And Walking Ballista I guess is the other one. Mm-hmm. And you know the creatures. We were just talking about how the creatures are kind of bad, uh, but the thing is, they play well with Nykthos and they take care. They take advantage of that weird one thing about white, which is for some reason all the cards in white always cost white white x. Like there, there's not, there's never cards in white that are just one colored pip and then colorless. It's always white white. That's true. And then I I guess the other things that we could talk about here is that, you know, as far as utility goes, it has a pretty good removal and disruption suite. For sure. A lot of it is enchantment based. It's got um, a lot of those add to the devotion with cards like Stasis Snare, which is like a flash version of the kind of, uh, you know, it's a flash version of basically the, what do we call it, Detention Sphere esque effect or Journey to Nowhere esque effect, where, you know, the enchantment comes in, you choose. A permanent, and then it it, it goes away. Um, this one only does creatures, but it is flash, which is pretty useful. Um, they also run some number of baffling end, which is one in a white instead of one white white, which is what stasis snare is. And baffling end just has a, a converted mana cost uh, restriction on it, where it only gets targets that are mana cost three or yeah. less. you think it's yeah the mana
1: advantage there. But yeah, yeah, much more restrictive.
2: Yeah, but the thing that's interesting about Baffling End is that it you cannot get the thing that it exiles back, uh, which happens with other effects like this quite a bit. So if Baffling End goes away, your opponent only gets a 3-3 green dinosaur creature token with Trample. They don't get their permanent back. And so I think that's an interesting thing to kind of keep in mind. Like sometimes... That token thing is a little bit of a problem, but generally you're getting rid of a card that's much better than a 3-3. And then the final card that is sort of in the removal suite, but is also kind of in just the synergy area that goes well with all the pieces of the deck is Elspeth Conquers Death, which is a saga from Theros Beyond Death that costs three white whites, and its three chapters are 1. Exile target permanent and opponent controls of the converted mana cost three or greater. 2. Non-creature spells your opponent's cast cost two more to cast until your next turn. And 3. Return target creature or planeswalker card from your graveyard to the battlefield. Put a 1-1 counter or a loyalty counter on it. It's a very cool card, I think, in this deck because it does so many things to help you. It can help you buy time on the first tick. It can clear the way for your combo on the second tick. And then on the third one, it can get you back either of your combo pieces, including walking Ballista with an extra counter on it to be able to um, get it going.
1: My issue with this card, I'm curious to hear what you have to say, Stan. What you have to say, Stan. Um, It's really expensive. Like, five mana is a lot, and a lot of times, I just find myself like, this isn't really worth five mana to me, even though all of the things you mentioned, Dave.
2: Yeah, I actually thought this card was really good, especially in card matchups where I was lacking card advantage, where you know mid range decks, stuff like that. Um, somebody who was going to be able to two for one me, and it, you know you do get to play this card in a deck with Nixthos, and so quite oftenly, quite oftenly. Quite often, you can use Nykthos to power this out, and so the casting cost is bad. I think that's why you only run two in the main as opposed to a larger number. But, you know, as, as far as mana sinks for Nykthos go, I think this is a pretty good card to have around in some number.
0: Yeah, that's my assessment as well. It's, although there were definitely games where I'd have to wait to cast it, Nykthos does let you cast it sometimes as early as turn four. Not often, but you, you can line up your permanents the right way to do that. I will say, even though its ability can be powerful, it's very slow.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And there were times when I would exile a creature and then someone would play enchantment removal because they're siding in all their enchantment removal against me. And then they hit it and I never get my permanent back. And it just felt like a really expensive removal spell. And I feel like that alone doesn't cut the mustard.
2: Well, at least it can get rid of any permanent. Though, right? It can get rid of a planeswalker, it can get rid of an enchantment. Like it it is a bit of a catch-all. Yeah. And I don't think you want to play this card early. Like that's why, that's why you have baffling end and stuff like that. Like you want to get the creatures out of the way, then this is there to help clean up, and that's kind of kind of it. Now, I'm not looking to play this card to any other deck. I'll say that. I don't think it's just a value card, but I do think it works here.
0: I will I will say, as a transition, I was much more impressed by the next card that we're about to talk about
2: tell us about it
0: it's called gideon's intervention and it was absolute draft chaff also an Ammon cat too white white for an enchantment as it enters the battlefield choose a card name your opponents can't cast spells with the chosen name prevent all damage that would be dealt to you and permanence you control by sources with the chosen name so it's like a super expensive meddling mage yeah this can Turn off an inverter opponent's entire game plan by naming something like Inverter of Truth or Thass's Oracle. But it can also stop a really powerful creature from getting damage in. So when my opponent cast a Galta, I cast Gideon's Intervention and then I won.
2: Yeah, or like some gi- a giant voracious hydra or something. Yeah, I mean, basically, this card is this is rune Halo. Yes, exactly. Is what this is. It's just a more expensive Pioneer legal Runed Halo. Yeah, I think this card turned out to be a lot better than I thought it was going to be too. I thought it was just for inverter, you know, and I think it probably ended up in the deck because of inverter originally. But honestly, I found it it's uh, was applicable in many more situations than just that
0: this is a theme that might come up every once in a while, but so many of these pieces, especially like the removal and some of these creatures that we've talked about, I found that they were ultimately designed to just buy you time until you can get either a combo finish or like, I don't know, line up enough birds to, to swing and, and kill your opponent that way. But what a great way to buy, like at least two, if not more turns, just like to draw a couple cards until you find what exactly you're looking for.
2: Yeah. It's tough because playing with this card is like I I often looked at it to sideboard out because there's a lot of matchups where th- people this is like an anti-haymaker card, right? Because otherwise it's just um it's, it's sort of like playing surgical extraction. Yes, main, exactly. In some ways. So you you have to watch that you're not playing it against like n- dropping it and naming like Monastery Swift Spear or something like that. Like it's not good against an aggro deck essentially because they're just going to have other threats. So you really want to make sure that you know what you're going to play against your opponent's deck with it. Um, But I think in the case of something like Stan was talking about, like Galta, you don't have any other way to get around that other than Elspeth Conqueror's death. You got stasis snare. So I think you can leave it in, in moments like that. But I I do think it's like a card that you have to keep an eye out on.
0: I actually, I think I disagree. I would never side this card out. I love this card. And I think there were some games when I was a little bit more mid rangey because I'm bringing in all of my additional interactive removal spells because let's say you're paired up against something like mono red i don't think this deck mono white heliod in particular really has the ways the tools to race a very aggressive deck sure you have like turn four kills but they're not that consistent so in situations where i was worried that my opponent was gonna go much faster than i was that's when i would bring in all of my removal and this would almost serve like a removal spell sure the body would stay on the board but it would prevent your opponent from dealing damage with big swift spears or big dragons or whatever
1: i think i i have to agree more with dave than you stan because i think it's it's a little expensive as a ruined halo because he owes me (laughs) as as an aggressive deck frequently the decks are going really wide anyway it's so like a mono green stompy deck is going to have like five creatures on the board and like be powering out hasty ones and just kind of going over the top of your cruddy little creatures by and large. And it's so like Gideon's intervention isn't really going to do enough to be worth a card to me. I think this is really main deck anti-inverter tech with like some side benefit uh, if they're not inverter. I think that if inverter was on a deck, this would not be in the deck.
0: Though you may be correct about that, I found almost no matchups where it didn't like serve some
1: purpose. And
0: the purpose for me was always like, oh, this will buy me a couple turns while I try to find a combo finish.
1: But is that worth four mana? Is the thing. I mean, what else are you spending your mana on? Like tutus? Two Other creatures? Other Yeah, I mean there's I mean there are perfectly good enough creatures to be running in this deck like you could run more anofensas you could run more daxos it only typically runs like
2: two of each more arcanist owls arcanist owl five through eight
1: <laughs> i mean there there are certainly options for powerful white finishers that like you know you could run like archangel Avison if you really wanted to or something like that just something stupid and big right but we're talking about a different deck now yeah not necessarily. I mean, so Gideon, I mean, Gideon's intervention is not necessarily integral to the primary game plan of this deck. I don't think. I think it's in there. I think it's in there just as
2: a tech card. Well, it's really in there. I mean, it's like it's not just inverter. Keep in mind, like this is this is really what this is tech against is Thassa's Oracle. Right, sure. like people, you don't want people to play that, and so any deck that uses Thassa's Oracle, this is good against that. It's like anything that has an alternate win con of some kind. This is a catch-all that helps you with that. The most popular one these days is Thassa's Oracle, but I think there was enough value here and there that it was still good. Yeah, it's not bad. It's just like not my favorite. Next episode of the Gideon cast, Gideon's and. Uh, intervention cast. So, I mean, the cool thing about all this this interaction is that it's all permanent based, and so it all helps with devotion. I was consistently impressed by Stasis Snare just as a card. Oh, yeah, honestly, good. quite often I was like, "This is just a good card." I mean, I know that people play Cast Out because it cycles and it's only one white pit, but like sometimes, like part of me, a couple times when I was playing this, was like, boy, why? Why isn't Stasis Snare seeing more play in other decks?" Just because it's like three mana, it's cheaper, you know, like. Why not? Is cycling that that good? I I mean, yes and no, right? So I think it depends on the meta, but that was certainly a card that made me stop and pause a couple times playing it too. All right, so let's talk about the final class of permanents in this deck. And I think that when Shane was talking about a third plan in this deck, maybe we were talking about these, but the the last kind of group of cards that we want to talk about here are Planeswalkers.
0: Yeah. Well, it's not just any Planeswalker.
2: Uh, it's it's the man himself, that beefcake, Gideon Jura. Chad himself. Yeah, G- Gideon Jura. Not Gide- actual Gideon Jura, which is a cool card too, but at any rate. So there's a bunch of Gideons in this deck, right? Basically, there's three different ones, uh, depending on your configuration. There's Gideon of the Trials, there's Gideon, Ally of Zendikar, and Gideon, Blackblade. So I'm going to talk really quickly about these because um, I think people know what a lot of these cards do. Yeah, but yeah. The first one is Gideon of the Trials. That's the three-mana one from Amonkhet. Uh, and that's the one that has the plus one that prevents all damage from a permanent, the zero, to turn it into a 4-4 four, four with Indestructible. And the final zero on Gideon is that the emblem that says, uh, as long as you control a Gideon Planeswalker, you can't lose the game, and your opponents can't win the game.
1: Yeah, that's the that's the real part, right?
2: Ah, uh, I mean in this deck, yeah, although honestly like it's a great card, but I have never had a Gideon emblem mean anything in any match that I have played it in. and I think that is mostly just situational or like playing in those matchups but not drawing the Gideon when I needed to or blah 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 blah. but the um, it's a good card and I think that obviously it's this is part of the way that this deck hoses Demir inverter out of the main deck, yeah, of course. But um, it's this is also just a decent card in general. It immobilizes a threat. Oh, for sure. And it turns into a pretty big threat itself, and so I think it's totally worth three. All right, the next one is Gideon, Ally of Zendikar. This is the four white, white one that is from, or, sorry, the two white, white one, now the four total CMC one that is from uh, Battle for Zendikar.
1: One of the first cards I ordered
2: a, a playset of when Pioneer was announced that is totally the same for me. I, uh, because they were cheap and I, I bought four of these and I bought four torrential gear hulks. Yeah. And, uh, neither one of them's a four of anything, but that's just what I went for.
0: If I recall correctly, that specific purchase that Dave made was a recommendation by our friend of the show, Emma Partlow.
2: It was. And Stan and I were sitting together at an energy trial and I just did it on my phone right when they announced it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Emma was like, we need these cards. They're going to be really good. And she was right.
2: They're good. Uh, so, Ally of Zendikar is the one that pluses to become a 5 5, which is with the normal kind of Gideon corollaries, zeros to make a 2 2 knight ally creature token, and minus fours to get an emblem that is an anthem. All creatures you control get plus one plus one. So, it's just a glorious anthem. Uh, loyalty is four. It's not in every mono white deck. It's not in the main of the deck that I happened to play the other day, but it was in the sideboard. Hmm. It was in the main of mine. I think it's a great card. It gives you a way to grind out against uh, mid-rangey decks. It certainly gives you some extra power. And um, it lets you do an Anthem and then play a Walking Ballista for two if you get in that situation. So you can kind of um, play the Walking Ballista as a 1-1 and it gets plus 1, plus 1 so you don't have to have two tokens on it to go off
0: can't the anthem also let you play the walking Ballista for zero?
2: If you'd like to, yeah. Yes. So you could put tokens on it later if you wanted to or if there's a way to put one on it with um with uh, uh heliod or something like that.
0: Yeah, like if you have dacthos out. Exactly. Or or Anafenza, yeah. You know? So you can you can probably combo off with just 3 mana at that point.
2: Yeah. So there are some cool things to do with that. Uh, The last one is Gideon Blackblade, which is the one from War of the Spark, the Rip Gideon, as I will call him. Uh, It it costs one white white. and this one says as long as it's your turn, Gideon Blackblade is a 4-4 with Indestructible. That's still a Planeswalker. Uh, Prevent all damage that would be dealt to Gideon Blackblade during your turn. It has a plus one that says up to one other target creature of you control gains your choice of vigilance lifelink or indestructible until end of turn. It has minus six to exile target non-land permanent. This one is not seen as much, but...
1: No, it's like, why do we talk about this one, y'all? You just, you just love this card, stand. You're like, get Blackblade really in this deck, I swear.
2: Oh, I
0: specifically picked a version of Mono White Heliod that had Blackblade in it. <laughs> like, that was that was... The only way I was going to test this deck was if I got to play three Gideons.
1: I mean this card is sweet and three is good. Um, why is three good though, Stan?
0: Well, I found that uh, you want multiple Gideons if you're going to use the Gideon of the trial's emblem ability specifically. Yeah. sometimes just just having the two in your board or in your deck wasn't quite enough. I I will say, like, the plus one on this one is also not nothing. Being able to give, like, any creature lifelink for no mana is also a potential way to to find a line to combo off. Mm -hmm. But uh, that wasn't the main reason. The main reason was I wanted to be able to create Gideon emblems more often.
2: And did you find yourself trying to do, like, a Gideon emblem for value against certain decks? Or, like... Because I feel like it's the emblem's mostly good, again, in situations where someone's trying to do some kind of alternate win-con against you, and it doesn't totally help you against aggro decks quite often or things like that. So when did you find yourself trying to go for an emblem play?
0: If I was in any situation where the only thing I could do with my mana was cast Gideon's, Or maybe have like a single Gideon in the trial that I could protect with my dinky creatures, Mm -hmm. then I thought the emblem was awesome because it creates uh, a must kill card for your opponents to ever win the game. So even though I wouldn't say it was ever like plan A for any of my matchups, just knowing that like I could create this really big hurdle that my opponents had to address to ever get through was kind of in line with my overall you know, super strategy when playing mono white, which was try to buy as much time as possible until I could find my combo finish.
1: And the other Gideons like Blackblade and Gideon ally of Zendikar are really good at buying you time. Like if you emblem early with a Gideon of the trials and you stick a Gideon ally afterwards, you can just make a bunch of white knight ally tokens, block all day, and just really draw yourself into comboing off, perhaps, or building up your board really huge over time. And Blackblade, with giving other creatures you control, perhaps like lifelink, indestructible, things like that, that's really good for buying you some time by gaining some life or uh, pivoting your game plan to be that aggro deck like we talked about earlier, eventually exiling something problematic. Mm -hmm. So let's talk now... About some strategies for playing with and against the deck. Of course, we sprinkled that in in uh, the previous part. But what did you all identify uh, in you know, playing some games and some leagues with this deck? What about let's start? Let's start. You know, early on, like what kind of things are you looking to do early on? What kind of hands do you want to keep? Besides just the, the easy combo ones, of
2: course. Yeah, I mean, that's the number one thing. Is like, what are the, do I have an easy easy combo plan here or not? And a lot of times that involves basically Anafensa or Daxos uh, Heliod and Walking Ballista, right? And so you're trying to trying to kind of go straight for it like that.
0: That that's three cards that you have to have in your opening hand.
2: It happens. I had that
1: I had that happen multiple times. I had that happen so many times. Yeah. That's why you have redundancy with like, you know, Daxos, Anaphenza. You know, I definitely had Heliod, Anafensa, Walking Ballista, and like three lands a number of times, and I was just like, "Well, but that's the
2: tier. That's the tier one draw to get out of this deck, right?" Yeah, is, then I get Thoughts eased. Yeah, I mean, you are going to get Thoughts seized or things like that. But what you are looking for is something that's going to get you into the combo fast, and that's the draw that gets you into the combo fast if you don't get interacted with.
0: Unfortunately, I don't think this is a deck that really benefits from mulliganing aggressively to the combo.
2: I don't think so either. That's a great point. Yep, you are not you are not throwing your hand away in order to do it.
0: And that's why there's this other, you know, tier of hands that you can keep sometimes, which I would say are your small creature aggressive starts. That's when you get to play your turn one through Inspector, maybe a turn two, Knight of the White Orchid, and Fenza or Daxos can come in here as well. But these are the creatures that not only hit the board earliest, but as I mentioned before, can put some pressure on your opponent, ultimately forcing them to maybe use a removal spell that might eventually clear the way for your combo later on.
2: Yeah. The things that make me the happiest in these hands, just throwing it out there, is a Heliod still, right? Not with Ballista, Mm -hmm. because Heliod will probably be online if you have one of these small creature hands. And also, you can use its lifelink ability to make stuff bigger, or topping out my curve with an Arcanist Owl, so that I know that as I go off of this early game into the kind of mid game version, I'm going to be able to have some choices about what I'm looking at coming out of it so that i can kind of like you know play owl at the top of the curve it can fly over and put a little bit of pressure and then get an extra card out of it as well
0: so as long as we're talking about the early game strategy here some heuristics that i picked up along the way it's almost always safer to lead with heliod on turn three than a turn two or turn three walking ballista because heliod is significantly harder to kill
1: yeah don't expose the the ballista Especially because it just takes so much mana to pump it up later. So I mean, unless you're getting like the life gain trigger somehow, but it's just it, it's expensive and dangerous to to play the ballista early. I think. Likewise,
0: if you're picking up this deck, you have to know your turn four kills and and figure out how you can maneuver either your creatures or your lands in order to enable a quick kill. Because I was learning things while recording this podcast that didn't yeah. necessarily occur to me. And that's one of the cool things about this deck is that you have all these lines that you can take and all these combos and synergies that you can employ to get your combo on turn four. So sometimes a hand that looks kind of slow and dinky could actually have like a killer top deck. You draw a healy out at the right time and then you essentially win on the spot.
1: Yeah, sometimes turn four kills can be good. Occasionally you don't get
0: that turn four kill and you have to go into the mid to late game. And I think for Heliod, that's basically the same thing. Whether it's turn five or turn 10, you're kind of just like living off the top of your deck, more or less. Trying to either buy time until you find the combo or if like the stars have aligned in a way that you can turn all your creatures sideways, that'll, that could get you the win. But those are rare. So in the mid to late game, you're usually lining up those combo kills either with an Arcanus owl to find like the piece you need to, to win on the spot. Maybe you're grinding out with your Gideons, uh, either using an emblem to buy time or Gideon allies and a card to just gum up the board with a bunch of two two allies.
1: Yeah. And like we talked about a little bit earlier, I think along with the Gideons, the other creatures in your deck, you, you can you can build boards and attack intelligently and make your small creatures bigger by you know give them lifelink, put some counters on things, and you can really grind out a long game, especially when, you know, if if you're playing against a, a deck that has Mid-sized creatures—they're trying to attack through you. You have a Heliod online that can block all day. You can give it. You can give other creatures life length, and you really just sort of start swinging the game towards you over time, and just really pull it out of reach. And then you can either figure out ways to attack intelligently through their board, or just buy time to the combo.
2: Yeah, I think that the the key thing that I didn't think about enough when I was playing this that Shane's talked about here is that in the the mid a middle of the game, having a bunch of mana and a Helion and some creatures is enough to get you there because those creatures can get big. And I needed to go on that plan a little bit more to pick up some more creature wins instead of waiting around for the combo quite as much as I think I did when I was playing this deck.
0: Yeah, that makes me think we should do a follow up next week where we do one more league each with all the lessons we learned today to see if we actually can play it a little a little more intelligently.
2: Fair. We should do that with most deck dives that we do, I think. But Yeah, with all of our free time, when we don't have
1: our our children or jobs or other obligations.
2: Yeah, when we're all retired in the old folks' magic home long after this pandemic is over.
0: The last thing I want to mention about the mid-to-late game, you have to know how to use all of your mana because there's a lot of ways to spend it in this deck. Sometimes it's cracking clue tokens. Sometimes it's just... Tapping a Nykthos to produce four mana, playing a second Nykthos to tap it for four more mana, stuff like that. Eventually, you can maybe even make a giant walking ballista to close out the game that way, or maybe clear out some pesky creatures on the opposing side. But beware, Nykthos is legendary.
2: Yeah. Good and bad. Yeah, although you can still do some cool stuff with it where you play it and then you activate it, then you play a second one and activate it again and you get massive turns. Uh I played against a mono blue devotion deck, by the way, in one of these, and that was super fun, where they actually uh milled themselves out with Gadwick because of a ton of a ton of uh Nikthos activations. So Nykthos, just a important card in Pioneer.
0: So Pioneer, as we know, very diverse format. A lot of matchups nowadays. If you're like Dave, you'll only play Heliad Mirrors. If you're like me, you won't play any. So while playing like 10 or so matches with this deck, I found some trends that were good matchups versus bad matchups. I'd be curious to run them by you guys. You sure? Starting with the good matchups, I think Blue-Black Inverter, pretty obvious. This is a deck that's got Inverter in its crosshairs. And I think the position of inverter has helped elevate mono-white heliad in the format in general.
2: Totally true. Just have to watch out for the stuff that they have that interacts with Planeswalkers now, right? Because they have Hero's Downfall, and they also have Eat to Extinction quite often, which also targets a Planeswalker. And then occasionally you might have the wild situations where they can attack into you with an Inverter of Truth and kill your Gideon. Yes. So keep an eye out for that as well. That
0: thing flies. Yeah, because
2: it flies. So you have to you have to watch it pretty, pretty carefully.
0: In addition to Blue-Black Inverter, I got to say, I was really impressed with the position of Heliod against Green-Black Stompy. Yeah. I played that a couple times, and I like went 2-0 the majority of those games. Hmm. Um, I think all the removals in, in the mono-white deck actually shuts off like the majority of the creatures in green-black because so many of them are three mana, You know whether it's Ronis or whether it's uh, that beast. It's
1: the steel Leaf, the Rotting Regisaur. Exactly. A Lovestruck Beast. That's the one,
0: yeah. So I thought that was really cool. Um, and this is another one where like, I loved having Gideon's intervention to just deal with the creatures that were more than three mana. Obviously, Stasis Snare served that purpose as well.
2: Yeah. The, uh, the, I, the thing I would say is that I think that this deck is pretty good against aggro decks in general, right? Because... You have, this is one of the situations where first strike on Knight of the White Orchid is good because if you have to block with it, you can hold it back. You can also continue to swing in because they can't afford to lose cards quite often. So if you get in a situation like that, plus you have a way to give a lot of things lifelink so you can keep yourself in the game that way. Mm-hmm. There's one exception, I think, to the aggro decks being not, uh, to the mono white being good against aggro decks. And I think that's in Stan's next bucket for some bad matchups. But uh, that deck is Banned Spirits.
0: Yes. I felt, I felt like that was practically unwinnable if they had a good hand. Because their interaction can get around my removal. Uh, they give their creatures hexproofs. They'll get a spell queller off of Collected Company literally every time they need it. Also, all those flyers are just so hard to deal with.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's just the key feature of Banned Spirits, right? Like, aside from everything else that that deck has going for it, they all fly.
1: What's good against Banned Spirits?
2: Inverter. That makes sense. I mean, I thought that... <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I think I think it probably does. I think it's pretty even. Yeah. Because Banned Spirits just seems like a dang good deck. I think that... Uh,
0: Blue-eye Control might be good.
2: Yeah, Blue-eye Control is pretty good. I think yeah. that I think that Green-Black Stompy is pretty good because the creatures are gigantic. Um playing against those kind of decks is pretty tough for spirits. Mm-hmm. Um I just took spirits through a league and I'm trying to remember what I got destroyed by cuz there were a couple of things that really wrecked me but
1: Sorry for the side note there. I mean I'm, I'm looking at I'm looking at the MTG meta IO and honestly this is a pretty darn good deck right now.
2: <laughs> yeah yeah this is
0: a mono white heliod duck dive but we're also going to endorse Bant spirits because that deck <laughs> is good it's good and fun i gotta say i lost to five color niv Mizzet while i was on heliod because they have hand disruption removal card advantage engines as well as giant threats um and although i only played that matchup once i felt like it was an a Abysmal matchup especially once they got walkers on the ground they had nahiri the harbinger real killer since her plus one destroys enchantments mm-hmm. or no i'm sorry her minus destroys enchantments her plus is uh pillaging rummaging that's the one but also nahiri can deal with uh with heliod yeah
2: mm-hmm. that's the thing that's a real drag is i played against a nahiri deck that was it was like a mardu kind of deck in uh like a mardu uh Amarcal deck and the Nahiri's just like randomly destroyed Heliot. That was super annoying.
1: I think that uh, mono green walkers can likely roll this deck pretty well as well. I've faced it when I'm as playing as the green walker deck, and I don't feel threatened at all. Besides potentially a combo early, but unless they're comboing off early, you just go over the top. And I think that that's a feature of five color Niv as well. It's like you have like just the biggest mid range deck. Right in in decks like the Walkers deck, in decks like Five Color Niv, and you can if you can disrupt and just eventually go over the top, you're you're good to go. Uh, I also think that blue white control is probably also decent to good against mono white because unless you're again, you likely just aren't fast enough on the beatdown plan, and the disruption um, that blue white control offers against mono white is just gonna suck because like they can exile your Heliod. They can bounce your Heliod. They have counter spells because you know, you're early on, you're tapping out. So you're not like typically playing around your sensor. You're like, well, I need this turn three Heliod. All right, up next, I'm going to go through the sideboard of this deck pretty quickly because it's a very
0: straightforward sideboard. Essentially has like four or five categories of cards. You have more removal. So things like Baffling Ends, Taste of Snare, Elspeth conquers Death. Not unusual for those... Cards to have extra copies in the side. Yep. They're also good against the mirror. Sometimes you'll have additional copies of Gideon, whether it's Allies Endicard or Blackblade. They'll chill in the sideboard. I could bring these in against, like, control strategies. Um, Likewise, I like Blackblade against Stompy decks, for example, because dealing with their big beefers was pretty easy when you can clear the way with, you know, a sword-carrying hunk. There is some amount of mirror hate in here as well. Glare of Heresy and Deicide as the big ones there. Uh, they do have random applications against some other pioneer decks. Spirits. Yeah, totally. And, and Teferi, I guess. Yeah. But I really think those cards are here because of how popular Heliod is in the format right now.
2: Yeah. Yes. I had a fun mirror match where uh, I Deicided their... Heliods on turn four and they decided my Heliods on on my turn four or their turn four so we uh we both had to like just bumble into each other i think that later in the the uh game we had three arcanist owls versus two arcanist owls in the air and that was how how it was decided that's that seems like a funny eventuality yeah
0: it's a spider-man meme yeah and then you got some number of graveyard hate cards because rest in peace is pioneer legal and it's still one of the best ways to deal with inverter useful against saltide delirium as well so if you're playing against heliod those are some cards that you can look out for should we wrap it up with our our closing
2: thoughts yeah i'm playing with this deck we kind of gave our impressions off the top but uh stan what did you what did you think ultimately
0: all right straight up all my opponents were ready for me And maybe that has something to do with just the class of players that play in Moto Leagues. And there's really a lot of people on Moto right now. But it really felt like everyone had a very clear plan for dealing either with my combo or with my Planeswalkers. So I never felt like I actually got like free wins, even against Inverter.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. I I think for me, it felt like there was a good reason for this deck to be as popular and kind of powerful as it is right now. It's it's pretty straight, given all of the different lines that we talked about being available for it, it is pretty straightforward to play the deck once you understand the combo and once you know what the different aspects are. And once you talk to your friends on a podcast and they tell you about... Parts of the game plan you totally forgot about. Uh, I think, you know, ways to use your mana. I think that, uh, you know, you can get there pretty fast with this. The combo pieces help you beat down, you know, the beat down pieces help you combo. And so it does have bad matchups. It doesn't have any card advantage, really. I mean, Arcanist Al is the only source of card advantage in the deck, which is really a drag. Clue tokens. Clue tokens, right. And then also maybe Elspeth Conquer's deck. Death. I like decks that tend to have a little bit more play in that sense, but this is, uh, this is not one of those. I would say that the main tip that I have for playing against this deck is what Stan said off the top, which is do not tap out against this deck if you can avoid it. If you have a deck that has any kind of interaction in it, try to get yourself in a situation where you can rep the interaction that you have all the time so that it makes your opponents hard life hard and trying to decide when they're supposed to combo off because there ain't nothing easier with a deck like this than when someone taps out for it and you go, cool, I can drop my walking ballista now and you're just dead. So don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. But at the same time, you can't give
1: the opponent too much time with that free tempo. But it's the kind of thing where, you know, if, if, if you do and they win, then were you better off not doing it? It's it's hard to really know how to play the percentages and to think about... It's, it's, it really rewards thinking a couple turns ahead. Like, how many draws or how many cards do I have to fade here in order for me to get my game plan established and online? Like, if I'm actually tapping out to build my board, am
2: I going to be able to go over the top? Yeah, I think when you're facing this deck down, though, like, if you're going to play some mopey 2-2... You know, or like a card that's really average, or leave it up to look like you're gonna, you could fatal push their uh, ballista if they do it. Leave, leave mana up for fatal push. Like, don't, yeah, exactly. Unless it's gonna win right away, like, don't, don't make it easy for your opponent to make decisions. Let them make mistakes. Yeah, like, don't
1: play your third Seder Wayfinder that you don't really need to or something. Yeah, exactly.
0: You know, one one of the issues I had playing this deck, which you touched on, Dave, was just how hard it was to get through it sometimes. And it feels, like, awkward when you're playing a combo deck to have no tutors, yeah. and no way to, like, really expedite the combo if you have it. Just, like, really reliable ways to execute it when you do have it. And it reminded me of the Mick Winsauce deck from the Pioneer Challenge a couple weeks ago that was splashing blue for some more control elements mm-hmm. makes me wonder if that's like something that the Heliod shell can periodically look into depending on the meta conditions as a way to just maybe combo off a little more reliably, maybe interact a little bit more reliably with something like spell queller that also supports the plan a little bit by giving you a white pip.
2: Yep. I mean, Stan looks at a deck and goes, how can I get opt into it? If it doesn't have opt in it already, that's, that's my guy Yeah, right there. Or Treasure Cruise. Sure. Dig Through Time. Big Teferi. Cruise in this deck would be hilarious. It it would never work. (laughs) You cast it off of Nyxos, though?
0: That is true, yeah.
2: Yeah, this gets at a point I was
1: thinking about where I think this deck right now is tuned for a metagame two weeks ago. And I think that there is a lot of room for continual, ongoing refinement of this deck. Like, will Gideon's Intervention see sideboard play instead of main deck? Um, Will we drop the Gideon of the trials and maybe just leave in some high value Gideon allies Uh, versus spirits or in like aggressive meta, if this deck struggles with spirits, which I think it does as well, like why isn't there something like maybe settle the wreckage in the sideboard? because white has so many powerful sideboards, especially it's highly tunable, but I also think the main deck has a lot of room for continual advancement and response to the establishment of game that we're seeing. That was my big issue with it is I felt like there was a really good core of the deck, but that it was a deck that was really targeting an expected meta. And I'm not sure that's always in its best interest. I think it's what got it to where it is by being able to stomp Demir Inverter, which was you know 20% of what tournament metagames and things like that. But at the same time, I don't think it should stifle continual advancement and people paying attention to the metagame uh, right now. And since we're going to have a lot of ongoing high turnout events on Magic Online, I think we'll be able to sort of see what people are doing
2: over time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any denying that the walking ballista Heliod combo in some shell is going to be prevalent, or present, I guess I should say, not prevalent, in Pioneer. Uh, it seems like a powerful kind of aspect of the format, and it just depends on what shell you want to enable it in. And in that way, I was wrong about how uh, my thinking about Heliod was originally, because I didn't think it was going to be good enough to get there. I think it's definitely good enough. I don't think it's oppressive or anything, but uh, it'll be cool to see how this evolves. So I agree with you, Shane. So I want
0: to maybe put a bow on this and kind of harken back to the initial question that started this conversation, which was, how did you guys feel playing this deck? Did you like playing this deck? And I'm trying to think about how I felt compared to other Pioneer decks that I've played, as well as other Pioneer decks we've talked about for the show. And even though I don't think anyone would argue that this deck is objectively stronger than the SRAM deck we played like a month ago or whatever, I kind of felt the same way when I was playing it. Like, I tried to do my thing. It's a pretty linear thing. I have more ways to do it, but either I can pull it off or I can't. And there isn't like a lot of ways to outplay my opponents per se. If anything, they have more opportunity to outplay me because I'm the one who's really presenting the questions. I, I seldom have the answers.
2: Yeah, I, I love that kind of way to put a bow on it. I mean, I I think I sort of agree with that, but I I also sometimes enjoy playing decks that just ask questions, and so yeah, that's where this gets into like my wheelhouse. But again, I think I'd love to see one that has. Uh, a little bit more ability to get through the deck as opposed to being playing off the top of the deck so quickly, or I just need to refine my beat down plan when playing this deck so that I can kind of go for it that way instead. Cool.
1: Good deck. I'm sure it will continue to be good and I'm looking forward to see how it, you know, changes over time. I think it's going to be a, a pioneer stable for a while. So like most weeks that we have a deck dive, uh, no wind down this week. And that's going to just wrap up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. You get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. If you use Apple Podcasts, please think about leaving us a rating and a text review. Make us feel good about ourselves. Help people find us. If you want to submit a question to the podcast, uh, you know, pick our brain on something we're thinking about and modern or pioneer. Shoot some ideas you have to us. You can tweet us at the dive down all one word email us the dive down at gmail.com again you can always support the show via patreon you can join at any tier it gets you access to the super secret slack server we're chatting on there more than ever a lot of people are you know, working from home they're not working at all so have a lot of great conversation we're doing an, a, a modern league right now have we had 16 people and it is currently this is the fastest I've done a community Little tournament ever. People are playing their games. It's
2: great. I'm about to play Lawson uh, after the, Lawson Zandy after this recording. I think. Wish me luck. Prowess versus Five Color Niv.
0: Yeah. Shout out and thanks to Ben, the Thran Culinarian, for setting up the tournament. It's been running really smoothly. Really fun to go head to head with our with our listeners and our
1: patrons. Uh, what? How many of us are two o? Oh, just I'm I'm two o. You guys won, We all won the first round,
2: so it's definitely fixed as well. So. Yeah, I've only completed one round. I'm about to go do round two.
1: Shout out to uh, Mana Traders, of course, for sponsoring us. You can sign up for Mana Traders using promo code Down, all one word, uh, 15% off your first three months. Uh, if you're interested in checking Magic online out, please use the code. Helps us, helps you. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood letting us use their music.
0: And until next week, get out there and count your pips, which is like three equals five. If you have five pips, you're always tapping Nick those with three lines.
1: Yeah, I gotta undo this belt, pull these trousers off, get my PJs. Is Stan his PJs? He's in some sweats. Oh man. Nicole's always telling me, Shane, why are you still wearing pants? You're on the couch, getting your PJs. I mean, we
2: have we had this discussion that I, yeah, you, I don't have PJ yeah, you, pants. Yeah, you like wake like up I, and put on jeans. I wake up and put on jeans and then right before I get, go to bed I take my jeans off. That's that's my life. <laughs> Have have you tried wearing sweatpants? Uh, occasionally I will wear sweatpants like on Christmas. I will I will wear like PJs that match the rest of the family for Christmas and stuff like but that. But they're made of denim. <laughs> yeah, I have denim buffalo check cute p- <laughs> PJs. Well, my children have real ones, real flannel. Uh, no, I don't like a sweatpant. Yeah, I don't know why I don't like it.
0: I was not a sweatpant person until I got a pair of lands. And I think they're lands. is it that thick
1: fabric? Like that's real soft. Uh, it's so
0: thick. It's so soft. They're like, they're coated on the inside with like a fuzzy of a, a, a warm fuzzy. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Hmm. I've just been wearing them for the entire duration of the quarantine. I, I only take them off to sleep and wash them <laughs> or if I need to like go for a walk outside, I haven't been washing
1: them, no. (laughs) Stan, ain't no one judging you right now. You can wear those sweatpants outside. That's funny.
0: All these video conference calls for work, they're always like waist up. So as long as I wear my tuxedo, (laughs) no one knows what kind of pants I'm wearing. Yeah, exactly.
2: blur
1: the camera, wear a tuxedo t-shirt. Even better.